Today I'm, uh, I'm going to start a, a four-part series that uh, I'm entitling Faith, Promises, and Sovereignty. Kind of apropos of the seasons kind of that we've been through in the church in the last few months. And even dealing with the subject of death. Just dealing with this subject of faith, promises, and sovereignty. I, I have wrestled with this subject deeply. In fact, I was contemplating this morning. I, I wrestle with a lot of things inside. I, I, I hate having a bent towards theology because I'm kind of like Tevia and Filler on the Roof. I don't know if you've ever seen Filler on the Roof or he's dialoguing and he says, on the one hand, and then on the other hand. And I, and I do that a lot. I, I'm actually jealous of people where life is very simple and Christianity is very simple and their faith is really simple and everything just, well, this is what I believe, this is what I do, and this is what God does. And they seem to be happier than me. And uh, they seem to enjoy life more. And I'm kind of sitting around in my study on the one hand and on the other hand and you know, de dealing with these tough questions of life that you wrestle with also. My granddaughter, Meriwether, she... She kind of helped me out with a story that Annalise told me about her this week. It, uh, she was tired of the rain. And so we, we had some good gully washers this week in the middle of the week. And she says, said, God, would you please stop the rain? I, I do not like this. <laughs> and uh, time had passed and the rain kept coming. And Annalise was putting her in her car seat. And then she prayed a second prayer. She says, God, you must not have been able to hear me with all those clouds. <laughs> Sometimes you feel like your prayers can't get through those clouds, don't they? It's just kind of dealing with those things, but I, she's a great theologian. She helps me all the time. There's been some pain in this journey, and as we've dealt as a family with our own death as the McFerrins are facing right now presently in our churches and um, I've observed things and I've been in conversations and discussions with people over the years where I keep going back to this whole question of faith and the promises of God and this thing called sovereignty. I am by my experience as a Christian, by my theology, I am what, what somebody in Christianity would call a supernaturalist. And uh, what I mean by that, being a supernaturalist, is that I believe that God is actively engaged in my life and he's, act, he's actively engaged in the life of other people and that heaven does intervene with the affairs of this life, your life and my life. I believe that very strongly. I've had, I've had specific answers to prayer that, that are unexplainable. I have the supernatural gift of speaking in other languages in prayer and when I do that privately, I don't do this at the pulpit, but I, I have the gift of tongues where, where that gift is released in me. I, I mean, it's, there's no explanation for it, and it's just not one little, she wrote a Honda, or I want a bow tie. It's uh, languages flow out of me, and I've, I've, I've prophesied probably to thousands of people in the United States about God's call, their destiny, and I get reports back all the time how God's working on that word and unfolding that in their life, and you know, I pray for the sick, and uh, I, I believe very strongly that God heals, and yet I don't see God heal all the time. Uh, but it doesn't stop me, but I've seen his hand. 
And I have, uh, I, I believe that God guides you and God guides me and he's the Lord is my shepherd. Okay, he leads me, what? Down paths of righteousness. He leads me still waters. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, I will come, and the Greek word is infinizo, I will make myself visible to you. I, I believe these types of things, and so I, uh, I am that way. At the same time, I observed among my Pentecostal brothers some things that I, that I am disturbed by. I'm disturbed by Christian weirdness. I don't know why we can't have a whole lot of faith and a whole lot of power and be normal people. I, I don't know why acting stupid and acting weird brings the power of God. I, I haven't figured that out yet. As if God, I want you to act weird because I just enjoy it. It's, it's a comedy in the courts of heaven. And then I'll start moving. I, um, I, I sometimes see us in an air of a doctrine that you may not be familiar with. It's called triumphalism. It means that we're claiming this side of heaven things only God has promised that side of heaven. I wish we could have perfect heaven on earth, but I could show you where Jesus never promised that in his eschatological scheme. And yes, he promised a lot of things, but one thing is we don't get heaven until Jesus returns. Until that time, Paul talks about this present evil age that we will be delivered from in Galatians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 6, it could be verse 4. And so we, we, I see these things. I see people who camp on formulas. If you do these five things, you pray it this way, as if a formula or the way I say something can manipulate the hand of God to do something on our behalf. And then on the flip side, I told you, I'm gonna, you're going to walk away, by the way, very confused today. <laughs> on the other end, on the other hand, I've watched amongst my camp in Christianity some things that I've been... Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, concerned about. I think that we have traded biblical truth for a thing called pragmatism. In other words, truth is whatever works. If it works, it's truth. So, hey, I grew my church to 10,000 people, and, uh, and therefore what I'm doing is right because look at the success. Well, you can be successful, and it doesn't mean it's truth. Now, I'm not here to judge people who are in large churches because they... There are some incredible large churches where they're doing great things. But the, the fact is, you just can't base it alone on this thing called pragmatism. I've watched intellectualism be traded for faith. You know, faith is not always reasonable. Faith is not always explainable. But faith works. Faith is active. And sometimes we get so intellectual. And I appreciate that the church has gotten a little bit smarter and we got some scholarship going on and some apologetics and some church history and some good theology and I, I appreciate that, but not to the place where I think myself out of childlike trusting God and watching heaven just actively involve ourselves on the earth. I've watched us drift to atheism, deism. It's almost like God's kind of wound up the clock of the universe, just letting it run and taking a long nap called the ages and one day he'll come and make himself real to us again. Watched all these things and both tensions and wrestled with all the questions that a pastor wrestles with and you know I've, I've decided you know Pete says you need to do kind of a summer Bob series and uh, I said you know this is what I, I want to address. I wanted to address this even before my own son-in-law Ryan passed away. 
I wanted to address this particular subject because it's deep on my heart. Let's go to some scriptures here. Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And I want you to notice this. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So God not only creates all things, but he sustains all things. I want to read Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. I want to read that again. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Now, he does as he pleases, and here's, here's a few things here you need to understand. He doesn't ask you your opinion. Here's the second truth. You better get down. He doesn't care about your opinion. He just does what he does. Why does God do that? Because he can. Because he's this thing, as I'll define, called sovereign. You know, we have this in the Constitution of the United States of America. What? That somebody can do as they please? Yeah, it's called a presidential pardon. Something's been introduced in the Constitution in Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution of the United States of America says the President of the United States can pardon exonerate anybody who's committed a federal crime. Yeah, well, how, really, how often have those presidents done that? Well, I just did some research on that. Just a few examples. George Washington let off with 16. Kind of evolved. Woodrow Wilson, he went, he went real radical on this. He did 2,480 pardons. Well, I don't like that guy. Harry Truman, remember, remember Harry? 2,044. How about Dwight? We like, we like Dwight. Okay, we like Ike. Okay, Ike, he, he pardoned 1,157 people. Uh, the guy who didn't do a whole lot was James Garfield. He didn't pardon anybody because he died before his term was over. Didn't get a chance to do that. Jimmy Carter, 566 people he pardoned. Ronald Reagan, 406. George H.W. Bush, 77. Bill Clinton, 456. George W. Bush, 176. Barack Obama, 64. You say, well, that's not, that's not fair. I mean, they just let a guy that, you know, like, rip people off. A lot of times it's white-collar crimes, and, you know, it just costs people thousands and millions of dollars. They just, just let them off the hook. Yeah, they can do it just like that. It's a presidential pardon. It's part of the Constitution. Why? Because he's the sovereign ruler of the state. And there's, a, there's part of that that reflects the character of God. God's the sovereign ruler of the universe. And sometimes he does things that pleases him that don't fit our calendar, that don't fit our expectations, that don't fit our framework. In fact, I've said this before and I'll say it again. God has chosen and used people I don't like. I watched him bless people I don't like. I watched him anoint people I don't like. I don't like their personality. I don't like their character. I don't even like their theology. But man, God continues to use them. Really upsets me. <laughs> Matthew 19, 26, Jesus said this. He looked at them and he said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. How many people know that God can do anything? All things are possible. Now, God's not always going to do the impossible in all situations, but all things are possible. Isaiah 43, verse 13, one of my favorites, is also henceforth, I am he. 
There is none who can deliver from my hand. Notice this. I work, and who can turn it back? In other words, man or Satan can't reverse the will and plan of God. I work, and who can reverse it? Everyone's upset with God. Well, God doesn't really care. He works, and who can reverse it? It was uh, Voltaire that said Christianity would be extinct 50 years after my death. 100 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society was using his house to print Bibles. Okay, I work, and who can resist it? They burned John Hoos at the stake. His name means goose, if you didn't hear that, Hoos. We're ready to burn him at the stake. He said, you know what? You're going to silence my song, but God will raise up a singing swan in his voice. You will not stop. And, of course, that was Martin Luther, like 150 years later. I work. And who can reverse it? When you can't fight God, you can't fight God. Gamaliel said to the Sanhedrin, we better be careful unless we find ourselves fighting God. Let's see how this thing plays out. Because who can reverse it? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29 to 31, and are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And I know that for some of you that's not impressive because you don't have too many. <laughs> but to others, it's, this is pretty significant. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You know, I always wonder, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a, I'm not a biologist, my wife's the zoologist in the family. You know, where do the birds go when the sun goes down? I just... I, 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 I mean, where do they go? They just seem to disappear. So they're up in the trees. I don't know. I, I have trees all over my property. I don't see them up there. They just disappear and show up the next day. But the minutest detail of my life, God is over. The minutest detail of your life, the Bible says, that God is over. Not two birds fall outside of the knowledge of his will. James 1.18 says of his own will, in other words, of his own choosing, of his own initiative, his own authorship, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In other words, he is the initiator and the author of my salvation and your salvation. I didn't wake up one day, he said, you know what, I think I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. God, here I am. I've just been waiting for you. I know we have the prodigal son, father thing, and he's waiting for the son to return, but God's more than that. He's not the prodigal son's father. I didn't come to Jesus, Jesus came to me. I didn't wake up and one day go after him, he woke me up. Hey, you've been sleeping too long, Bob. Get up, tired of your snoring, time to get into the game. Wake up, okay, he woke me up. He has an alarm clock that wakes us up. By his own will, he brought us forth. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I know many of you have this on your refrigerator, on your mirror, in your bathroom. Come on, those scriptures, it brings you warm and fuzzies. We don't have too many devotional books on this. For, for your, look what he said. You should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to us to suffer. Now, who granted us to suffer? Well, God granted us to suffer. God is over 
all our suffering. God is involved in our suffering. And uh, you know what he's doing in that suffering? He's, he's showing you off. He's showing me off. Remember what God said to Satan, Lucifer, in the book of Job. Have you considered my servant Job? You see, when Job is bellyaching that whole time down there, and he's, I want my session with God, what he didn't realize is that God was showing him off. He says, okay, I'm going to allow this to take place because I'm going to let you see someone who's going to love me for who I am, apart from nothing. You know, Christians, they wrestle with this thing called pain and suffering. They wrestle with it. One, one particular Christian leader says, this makes God a child abuser. I think that's bad theology. I think that's bad theology. No, actually God gets glory out of the journeys we have in suffering. God moves us forward in his plan through suffering. Now that doesn't mean that we passively just submit to evil. We're to resist evil. We're to fight against evil. We're going to resist evil. But sometimes we're finding ourselves in fixes where we have to endure evil. And this is where really faith and trust in a sovereign God begins to reveal itself. When it doesn't quite work out like you wanted and you have to endure and you have to believe that he's still there and he's still working out his plan in your life. This is when faith gets tough. Now, another scripture. Psalm 95, verse 3. For the Lord's a great God, and a great king above all gods. Come on, he's over all the supernatural beings, all the fallen angels, the archangels, all the angelic beings ever created. God is over them all. I love Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. How many people know that God doesn't vacillate? Has he said, has he spoken, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Come on, God fulfills his promises and God will complete his plan. The things that involve his plan for your life, he's going to bring to pass. He will not lie. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so here we see the flip side of God's sovereignty, and it's our response to who he is and what he's promised and what he's spoken. God rewards our faith. God rewards our seeking of him. He says, yeah, but he also said, Bob, that God does what he pleases. Yes, I did. Well, what is true? Both. I don't like that. It doesn't fit my human brain. That's because you're not God. Now, why this series? Let me give you six things why I'm on this. First is this. I want this church to become a, a church of promise possessors. I'm going to say this straight out. Unbelief, cynicism, skepticism will actually cause you to become passive, blasé, uh, careless, apathetic, and fall short of God's best for your life. So there's no room for just a case Sarah, Sarah, and who knows, and, and just kind of be a Christian agnostic and just lay on the, on the wayside. 
and move forward and fulfill the plan of God for your life. It will not happen. The second thing is this. I want to do this series because I want us to become a church that lives by faith in tension between two truths. And here's the two truths. We're going to live in tension of that. One, God is sovereign and does as he chooses. We're going to have to get that down pat in our head. The second is this, though. God, in many cases, works with our faith and he works with our prayers. I'll get into this in a little bit. The third thing why I'm doing this series, the third reason, is because I want to confront Christian determinism and at the same time I want to confront Christian, um, <clears throat> Christian presumption. Determinism is, is a view that says this, God willed it and uh, so therefore it happened. It has nothing to do with my disobedience, it has nothing to do with my poor workmanship, bad engineering for those engineers that might be in the crowd, has nothing to do with uh, my unbelief. It just God willed it. It's kind of like a, in some parts of the world where they're under a, 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 an Islamic influence, the building caves in, it was just Allah willed it. Well, maybe it was bad engineering. Maybe it was bad engineering. And we, we, don't, we want to stay away from determinism. At the same, way, same thing, we want to stay away from presumption. And there has been a lot of presumption. And uh, where, we, where we just think I can have whatever I believe and whatever I confess. No, you can't. You can, all become, you can all become millionaires if you have enough faith. No, you can't. No, you can't. You can all, you can all do anything you want to do in life if you put your heart and mind to it. No, you can't. I mean, I've said this before. I'm, I appreciate Michael Phelps, all his Olympic you know, trophies and all those achievements as a swimmer, but man, that guy's double jointed, he's got a wingspan, you know, like five eagles put together, he's, I mean, he's got feet for fins, I mean, fins for feet, and uh, I mean, I look like a little T-Rex with my arms coming out of my body. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not winning any Olympics. No, it helps me when I bench press, yeah, but it doesn't help me when I'm swimming. How many people have gotten in the pool and you just started swimming like crazy? And you look, put your head up, and you haven't moved an inch. <laughs> the fourth thing is this reason, because I want to answer the question is forgiveness of sins and salvation the only promise God gives us? Now, this was birthed out of some conversations I had with some young leaders. I'm not talking about young being like Matt and, and uh, Phil and all these guys, these are all like their sons, my grandsons in the faith. These are some of the questions and some of the things that they've challenged me with as I've reached down even to a, a Z generation coming up in the church. That forgiveness is of sins and salvation, Bob, is the only thing you can really say God promises. Now my rebuttal, just from a pragmatic point of view, which is not always correct, is that what they're saying is apart from eternal life, there's, there's nothing for me to believe. I, have, I can't believe for anything else. I can't believe for my future. I can't believe for provision. I can't believe for healing. I can't believe for help. I can't, I can't believe outside of what I'll call a lottery program for the mercy of God. Just ran, random mercy might be granted to me. And so maybe the balls will line up in heaven and Bob won today! 
He gets some mercy. He won the, he won the jackpot. I mean, that's, that, that's all just chance. Maybe. Perhaps. I mean, I, I just leave people with that. Pastorally, I can't go there ethically. I, it's part of my wrestling question on this. So what is promised to us as believers? Up, above forgiveness and above eternal life, which is promised to us. The fifth thing, reason why I'm, I'm doing this is because I, I want to answer the question, why prayer? In other words, the question could be asked, if God is already in control and has a plan, then why do we need to pray? How many people have ever been asked that question before? Great question. I hope to have some answers for you. The sixth reason is this, because I want us to live in the insurance, the assurance, not insurance, but assurance, that God is present with us, that he's active, that he's involved in your life, my life, our church. He's watching us. He's orchestrating events and has a plan where he wants to land us. And he has given us his redemptive names to let us know who he is in our life. When he says, I am the Lord who heals you, that means I am present here to heal. I am the Lord who is present with you. I am here present with you even when you face evil. I am the Lord who is your peace. I am the one who loves you and hasn't rejected you. I am the Lord who is your righteousness. I have made you fully equipped to come into my presence by the blood of my son. I am the Lord who presently sanctifies you. I'm working you to make you more like Jesus. I am the Lord who, who is your shepherd. I am guiding you into my, into my will. I am the Lord who is your banner. I am presently the one who fights for you. I mean, those are true realities. That doesn't mean there's sovereign choices that we don't understand in the midst of that. But God is those things in our life. He is those things. So let's Let's answer this first question. What is God's sovereignty then, Bob, that you're using here? Sovereignty of God is this. It's, it's God is the supreme authority, and all things are under his control. Now, this rattles some people's faith. I want you to know, some people are very rattled by that, because if that is true, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of wrong things taking place around us and in the world. Have you noticed that in the news? Have you noticed that in your personal life? Have you noticed that in relationships and stories and friends telling you stuff? There's just a lot of wrong things going on. So if God is in control of the, of the universe and all these wrong things are going on, what's that all about? What is that all about? I told the story here before when my dad took me golfing in Palm Springs. Like in August. I don't know if you know what like golfing in Palm Springs in August. It's, it's like, uh, don't, don't go to a sauna, just go to Palm Springs and play 18 holes of golf, okay, in 115 degree weather. Now his partner was, lived with him down in this place and he was an orthopedic surgeon and a lawyer. I don't know how, I guess he protected himself against malpractice suits, but I, he was both and he had this, he had this swamp cooler on his on his, in an a air-conditioned golf cart. I've never seen an air-conditioned golf cart before, but this guy had it, and I did not. And he found out I was a preacher, and uh, he just harassed me for 18 holes. Of all the bad stuff he's seen, how could, answering this question, if God's in control of everything, then how could this take place? And he's just, you know, and I make a bad shot. Where was God helping you on that one, Pastor? 
I said, that was physics, by the way, right there. That was not God, that was physics. You know, this is something that people wrestle with and questions that we need to try and answer. There are three aspects of God's sovereignty I want to lay out for you. The first is this. First is this creation. All things, John 1, 3 says, all things were created by him. The second is this. It's his preservation. The Bible says this about Jesus. It says he sustains all things by his powerful word. You know, God only didn't just create the universe. He, he sustains it. For instance, you go to physics, the first law of thermodynamics. Energy cannot be created and energy cannot be destroyed. It can't be transformed into to other kinds of energy, lesser states. But, the, but the, um, the quantity is always constant. Now where in the universe does something just by itself just sustain the way it is? And the answer is nowhere. And how could this energy stay constant like this? He upholds all things by the word of his power. Remove that, the whole universe collapses. The third thing is his plan. You know, Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't believe that's the gates of hell beating on the church. It's Jesus beating on the gates of hell with his church. I I have lived the reality of that scripture my whole life. I've, I've hung my hat on it. I've hung my money on it. I've hung all my life decisions on that reality that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's why I'm not rattled by what's going on in politics or society or another nation. Or I mean, I have all sorts of people try to put fear in me, but I'm telling you, he said, I will build my church. Now, are those things real? Yeah. And could I get hurt? Yeah. But he's going to build his church. I might get hurt. I might get martyred. Okay, but he's going to build his church. That is going to be a reality that's going to move forward. And that was the mentality of the early church. I mean, Jesus said to Peter, he said, when you were young, son, you ran wherever you wanted to run, free, you're fishermen, you jumped in the water, you took your cloak off, you I think Peter had a great suntan. He was always without clothes on, you know, out in the boat. One day when you grow old, they're going to bind you up and take you to where you don't want to go. Peter, being a good Christian, does exactly what you and I do. He looked at John and said, what about him? (laughs) And he said, if I desire that you stay alive until I come, that's not your business. Follow me. Now, there's a sovereign statement. Well, did God do that in the New Testament? He absolutely did that in the New Testament. Two guys got arrested, Peter and James. Both part of the 12, both part of the three, both on the Mount of Transfiguration. James got the sword, Peter got the angelic visitation. Well, James didn't have enough faith. Really? You're going you're to play that card? James followed Jesus. Jesus asked him, can you be baptized with the baptism I was baptized with? Can you drink the cup that I'm drinking? James says, I can, man. He went through it. He died a martyr's death. He was a great leader in the church. He was one of the sons of thunder. He was part of the core. God chose that this was his time. 
He chose John to stick around for a while. He told Peter, it won't be that way for you. I know we wrestle with these things. We think somehow my attitude can change that, and it can't. Your attitude is going to build this church. Your attitude that God's sovereign over a plan, and I'm going to tell you something. I read the back of the book, and we win. We win. We need to understand that. We win. Now, two opposing facts. I know I'm getting real theological on you in this, but this is the tough questions that I have to wrestle with, even in my office, not just by myself, when people come to talk with me. The first is this. The first fact, God's plan is definite and it's fixed. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, notice this, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He moves creation according to the counsel of his will. He preserves, cre preserves creation in the counsel of his will. Come on, he's moved history, church history, Western history, global history through the counsel of his will. He's worked in your life according to the counsel of his will. He's moved his church according to the counsel of his will. He's going to bring about his plan. There's one fixed plan. God's fixed on this. It's going to land. The second is this. The second, but here's another fact. We are commanded, not just suggested, we are commanded, not recommend, not recommended, but commanded, to believe and to pray, and prayer has power. Notice this, James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Come on, what happens, Bob, if we don't pray? What happens if we don't believe? What happens if we don't contend? Here's the answer. Nothing. Nothing's happening in my life. <laughs> really? Are you praying? No. Are you seeking? No. Are you contending? No. Are you believing? No. Well, duh. <laughs> you were commanded to pray. Now, where do you reconcile these two? God wills the end. But God also wills the means. So God wills something, but he also wills that it will come to pass through prayer. Two examples of people who lost out. And let me just give you one verse of an example of when God asks us to pray. I love Psalm 27 and verse 8. David said, my heart tells me to pray to you. Other versions, you'll hear it when you said, seek my face. And the idea here is the revelation of God giving a green light for us to enter into his presence and a commandment, you're to call upon my name. So my heart knows I'm to call, but who birthed that? God birthed that. Who initiated that? God initiated that. Who started the drawing? God started the drawing. And so when my heart tells me to pray, when you said, seek my face, I do pray to you, O Lord. If my people are called by my name, shall humble themselves and seek my face. Come on, I will do this. He's giving us, he's stirring us to pray because he says, I am also over the means by which I'm going to accomplish my purpose. Two examples of people who lost out. One is the town of Nazareth. You know the story in Mark 6. Jesus had great success in all of his Galilean ministry. He goes to he goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and he has totally no success at all. And the Bible says this, 
He was not able to do a miracle there except to lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. Question, why? Because there was no expectation. Why? Because no one brought anybody to him to pray. Wasn't it just Jesus prayed for like 100 people? Ah, I couldn't get him healed. And Oh, I couldn't get him healed. And oh, That didn't happen. They didn't bring people. They had no expectation. Therefore, they, they got robbed by their own unbelief. The other is the, uh, the disciples. You know, when Jesus was walking on water in the storm and walked by the boat, and they thought he was a ghost, and he says, you know, do not fear, it's I, it's me. The only one who asked if they could get out of the boat and walk to him was Peter. Why did Peter get to walk on water even though it was short-lived? I'd still... That would be a great experience, even if it was short-lived. And you know what? Jesus picked him up. He did walk on water back to the boat, unless Jesus carried him like a baby. And they walked back together. Why Peter? Because he was the only one who asked. Well, what the others been granted? Had they started seeking? Yeah. How many Christians have lost because of lack of faith, lack of seeking? At the same time, we've got to look at this. We do not always receive what we ask for. Well, I don't like this side of the teaching, Bob. But this is the raw side of the teaching. I'm going to give you two examples of people who did not get an answer to their prayer. The first one was Jesus, and the second one was Paul. Jesus three times asked his father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And the father said no. It wasn't Jesus was a coward and was afraid to be beaten and, and face a, a, a death, probably in his hum, human makeup. Yeah, he, he probably didn't look forward to that like you and I wouldn't look forward to that. But that wasn't what was at the, at the, at the point of tension here. The cup represented the sins of the world and he becoming cursed for it. You've got to imagine, he had perfect communion with his father. This was going to break it. It was going to sever this thing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a true, sincere cry, quoting Psalm 22, which the whole crucifixion, it was a prophecy of the whole fulfillment of the crucifixion, but Jesus didn't get his answer to prayer on that one. Lord, if it's possible... Remove this cup. And the answer was no. Second is Paul. He got a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that thorn is. All sorts of speculation. But I believe the Bible doesn't tell us what that thorn is. So that you and I, in whatever issues that we're facing, where something just doesn't go away. Whether it's physically or emotional or mentally or spiritual or relationally, it's just one of those nagging things that we go through that causes that pain that you kind of hold in one part of your soul. You know what I'm talking about on that? That we can all identify with Paul. He said, three times I asked the Lord, remove this thing. And this, whatever the thorn was, it came from Satan. And it was beating Paul up. You know what God's reply to Paul was? Paul, my grace is sufficient. You're going to endure this one by the power of my spirit on you. But the answer is no. 
well, Bob, where's the truth in all this? It's in everything I said. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> and so what we need to do is we need to rest. We need to rest in this assurance that God knows best. That God's assurance is that he's with us and he's going to unfold his plan in my life and in your life. Psalm 84, verse 11. For the, God, for, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Come on. The sun is shield is God as a protector. He says he was going to bestow favor on us, honor on us. He's not going to withhold any good things. But church, he will remain sovereign. Let's stand on our feet. Let's worship him. Just play the bridge. You know, my, my life, I could, I could tell you a story of my life that, uh, that you would say, you know, Bob and Sue have lived a very charmed life. I, could, I can leave out a lot of details because we've had so many good things happen to us, so many promises fulfilled. You know, we had prophetic commissioning here in early May, and, and uh, when Sue and I were, I was 24 and she was 22, and we had hands laid on us. Every single word came to pass. God was just faithful in the way it happened. And I can, I can, I can fill a book. I'm trying to write a, an autobiography. I, I got a little bit too much on the other side of the, the story. I got I to gotta, I gotta get out of the ditch a little bit on it. It'll get out in print one day as soon as I learn how to write. But I could, it, it, would, it, would, it would read almost like a fairy tale. I have another part of my life that could read just like a tragedy. And so I've known both good and evil. I've known the injustices of man, the curse of the universe, the activity of Satan. And I've also known the faithfulness of God and the one who works all things together for good, and the one who fulfills promises, and the one who's honored my faith and honored my prayers and honored my seeking. And somehow, I've had to learn to live in the tension of both. And I'm still standing. The church is still here. We're still moving forward. 